Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 28th, 2016. I think this is the new Jimi Hendrix uh, version of our opening music. Yeah, we like to change it up a little bit from time to time. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really crazy, bizarre things being said out there. We take the time to... Open up the Bible. Yeah, it's not all that hard. You can turn them on now with the, because they're on your smartphones or your tablet devices or on your computers, or you can have, go grab one of those old analog Bibles with pages and things like that. And what we do is we open up God's Word to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And apparently there is no shortage. It's more than apparent. Uh, uh, No shortage of really crazy things being said out there. None of it has anything to do with what God's Word actually says. It absolutely uh, distracts and undermines the discipling task that the church has been given to do. Um, and what's being taught today, well, these are doctrines of men, false prophecies and stuff like that. So, uh, had a little bit of time off thanks to the Thanksgiving holiday. A few things happened while I was gone, most notably the death of Fidel Castro. And, uh, I, I must confess that, you know, it's very sad and tragic that somebody as wicked and evil as he was, would go into eternity uh, without being a penitent believer in Christ uh, for the forgiveness of his sins. My best friend, when I was growing up, uh, his father, he was a Cuban refugee and had actually been tortured in uh, uh, Castro's uh, prisons after Castro came to power. So, uh, yeah, let's just put it this way. I had no particular love for Castro um, but at the same time, I, I never rejoice when anybody departs the earth and it looks like they were not anybody who trusted Christ and were forgiven because Christ even bled and died for Fidel Castro's sins. Scripture teaches us quite clearly that that's the case. But what we're going to do um, to start things off, we're going to do a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update. 
And we're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to the 1990s. And we're going to listen to Benny Hinn's prophecies for the 1990s. And there was a prophecy in there regarding Fidel Castro. We'll take a listen to, uh, well, Benny Hinn's prophecies and kind of just ask the question, biblically, does this make Benny Hinn a false prophet? Or does this make him a true prophet? who prophesied falsely, <laughs> which, by the way, the second one, Scripture does not have a, um, yeah, it does not have a category for that. So, uh, and uh, you know, let's take a look at what else we're going to do. Then we're going to head over to Bethel. We'll kind of stay under the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. And uh, Bethel today posted a video on their YouTube channel uh, talking about the prophetic word for November 2016. And we're going to hear both Chris Vallotton as well as uh, uh, Bill Johnson. And I cannot make heads or tails of this nonsense. And uh, we're going to note that uh, Bill Johnson is encouraging the, kind of the non-Catholic form of non-prayer. Now, I have to explain what that is, uh, and we'll explain it when we get into the segment, the non-Catholic form of non-prayer. See, the Catholic form of non-prayer is when you pray to the Virgin Mary or you pray to a, you know, a dead saint or something like that. That's not prayer. And yeah, you're, you're not heard by God. Uh, there's one mediator between God and men. That's Christ, Jesus himself. Um, so we'll, we'll note the, uh, <clears throat> the evangelical the, uh, non-prayer uh, uh, technique that uh, Bill Johnson encourages the folks there. And then we're going to head over to Larry and Tiz Huck's television program. And um, we're going to listen to Larry and Tiz Huck lay out for us quite clearly the false teaching that you know uh, you know that you know you can oppose by opposing those who are genetically jewish that somehow you are invoking a curse on yourself that is not what scripture teaches but uh, we'll take a look at what Larry and Tiz Huck said and you'll note uh, in my uh, prologue to uh, the book of Exodus we covered this topic uh, and noted that scripture discusses and uses the word Israel in in several different ways, but we'll talk about that when we get there. And then, if we have uh, time, uh, man, <laughs> just, it's going to be kinda one of those uh, episodes where I clearly am packing too much into one episode. Uh, we're going to head over to um, the revelation in the news as we listen to Zach Drew and Sasha Vols. Um, <laughs> apparently uh, telling us something that has to do with the news and revelation. Of course, they're billing themselves as an alternative news source, which kind of begs the question. Um, if you're going to be an alternative news source, um, I would suspect that you, maybe you have received a degree from a reputable university in you know journalism or something like that. Uh, but on top of it, if you're going to be doing, you know, Christian doctrinal theological news, my suspicion would be is, is that not only do you need to know at least a smidge and you know about journalism, but do you really need to know a lot about you know the Bible and rightly handling it and things like that? And neither Zach Drew nor Sasha Vols strike me as um, a professional journalist or even properly trained theologian. So 
Um, yeah, we'll see if we uh, have time for that with today's episode. If not, I'll hold it off for a, another episode. And then at hour number two, we're going to uh, return to John Wimber's power evangelism uh, teaching, and we're going to listen to part two of it and review it. We may not get through the whole thing because at the end of it, they have like you know some kind of a healing service thing. Uh, it looks like something from TBN, but I think you get the idea. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And since we're going to be doing a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, that requires us to do this. Oh, hallelujah. Get up right now. Robert Tilton's Hubabaconda. So uh, we're going to go back in time, and we're going to be listening to, well, you know, Benny Hinn, you know, the prophet, the one who has the Catherine Kuhlman anointing, the the one who, you know, um, <clears throat> Dr. Michael Brown, uh, you know, went to bat for and you know, basically engaged in obfuscation. And, of course, you know, he has concerns about how he, he raises money, but apparently is uh, unaware of the fact that, uh, that Benny Hinn is uh, a false prophet. We'll note what Scripture says in this regard. And, uh, and so what we're going to do, we're going to pull out our time machine, and uh, we use the Back to the Future DeLorean for our time machine, and we're going to go back to the 1990s. So let me whirl this up. Oh, yeah. Engine's sounding good here. Let's open up the time circuits. I got to pl- plug in a little bit of data here. Yeah, we're heading back to the 1990s. Yeah, that's good. Uh, one last bit. There we go. All right. Uh, time circuits have the co- correct coordinates. The uh, flux capacitor right now is fluxing, and we got to get up to 88 miles an hour. Here we go. Fasten your seatbelt. Let me turn off that alarm. Yeah, <laughs> happens every time. Okay, so here we are. We're back in the 1990s, and we're going to note, uh, well, you know, a few prophecies that, um, well, Benny Hinn gave during the 1990s, and just kind of ask ourselves this question. Does this make Benny Hinn a false prophet? And we're going to look at what the Bible says not Dr. Michael Brown, because Dr. Michael Brown has come up with a new category, the true prophet that prophesies falsely. So um, let's uh, listen in as 
Benny Hinn will pull out his prophetic machine gun and uh, give us the lowdown of what it is that the Spirit was telling him back in the 1990s as as far as what would happen in world events, and particularly Fidel Castro. Let's listen in. The Spirit of God tells me an earthquake will hit the east coast of America and destroy much in the 90s. An earthquake will hit the East Coast and destroy much in the 90s. Hmm. Not familiar with the great East Coast earthquake of mass destruction that hit during the 90s. Not one place will be safe from earthquakes in the 90s. Not one place. Not one place will be safe from earthquakes. Yeah. I'm glad we made it through. These who have not known earthquakes will know it. People, I feel the spirit all over me. Yeah, that's not tongues. That's just gibberish. The economy of the United States of America is going to fall. The whole economy is going to fall in the 90s. I'm glad we've had some time to rebuild it after the, the complete collapse. Many businesses will go bankrupt. The Spirit tells me Fidel Castro will die in the 90s. Fidel Castro will die in the 90s. Yeah. Fidel Castro, the brutal, totalitarian, tyrannical uh, communist dictator of uh, the island nation of Cuba, died, well, on Friday, just a few days ago. Um, I'm pretty sure here that um, Benny Hinn got this one wrong. (laughs) <laughs> got it wrong indeed let's let's listen in i mean so we, no great east coast earthquake there was no death of fidel castro and the great meltdown economically let's, oh my oh my yeah the spirit tells me that the church once raptured following the rapture a woman president will be in the white house Right, so following the rapture, folks, uh, you know, female president will be in the White House. Okay. And that woman president will destroy this nation. But my... We dodged a bullet there. But then again, I'm pretty sure the rapture hasn't already happened. Will, will be gone. My saints will be home. A world dictator is coming on the scene... It's a short man. So a short world dictator is coming on the scene, folks. He's a short man. Very short. Yeah. I see. Napoleonic, yeah. A short man. Yeah. Who's the perfect incarnation of Satan. So uh, the, the Antichrist, the world dictator, is coming on the scenes in the 1990s. And he will be the perfect incarnation of Satan. Wow, yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what does, we need some stat, folks. I mean, what does this make his prophetic batting average? Yeah, zero. It, it <laughs> Just like totally zero. I mean, so uh, paging Michael Brown, paging Michael Brown, um, 
we need uh, a, 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 you know some kind of explanation here from somebody like Michael Brown. Could you please explain to us how we are to now view uh, Benny Hinn in light of these prophecies? I mean, because, I mean, that was like swing and a miss, swing and a miss, out, 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 out. I mean, I've seen, you know, uh, National League pitchers with a better batting average than what we saw from uh, (laughs) Benny Hinn here. Um, But, uh, by the way, Scripture tells us how we know if somebody is a false prophet. Now, I'm pretty convinced that there is no charismatic alive who's going to defend these prophecies and say, oh, no, they were true. And, you know, yeah, I, I, charismatics and NAR types are all going to have to say, yeah, those were false prophecies. Uh-huh. But what does that make Benny Hinn? Does it make him a true prophet that prophesied falsely? No, not at all. Uh, Here's what it says. Deuteronomy chapter 18. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak. I I think we could pretty much surmise here uh, using logic that God did not tell Benny Hinn to let everybody know that Fidel Castro was dying in the 90s. I'm pretty sure that God didn't tell Benny Hinn that there would be a great earthquake on the East Coast and that people who've never known earthquakes are going to know earthquakes. And it would cause great devastation. There was, I'm not familiar with the great East Coast earthquake of the 1990s. Um, yeah, and so all of these things that we heard Benny Hinn say, they are all false prophecies. And God didn't tell him to say any of those things. And he was well, speaking presumptuously, to say the least, by hijacking the name of God and slapping it on these false prophecies. So here's what Scripture then says, And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Uh, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. And, yeah, and by the way, the penalty in the ancient theocracy of Israel for one who presumed to speak in the name of the Lord, um, the, the well, the penalty was death. That's what the Mosaic law called for. Um, so, in other words, Scripture by its definition, says if somebody prophesies falsely, that makes them a false prophet. Benny Hinn is not a true prophet. And there is no category of a true prophet who prophesies falsely. That's, that is not even a biblical category. So uh, we can definitively say based upon, well, Benny Hinn's inability to get it right on all of these prophecies, especially the Fidel Castro one, being that he didn't die in the 1990s, but in late November of 2016, um, that that definitively makes Benny Hinn a false prophet and somebody who should be marked, avoided, and no Christian should ever send him a single dime. It doesn't matter if he sits there and says that we're reaching the nations for Jesus. No They are not. They are reaching into your pocketbooks and the pocketbooks of Christians who are delusional and fallen for the delusion 
uh, all over the world and fleecing them and put in, well, basically lining the coffers of Benny Hinn, who has uh, quite a luxurious private jet and likes to stay in five diamond resorts around the world and things like that. You know, you see what I'm saying? So uh, Benny Hinn is the epitome, the, the, the ultimate example of somebody who is a false prophet. He is not a true prophet who prophesied falsely. He is a false prophet. In fact, if you do not go with this definition, the biblical definition of what it is that makes one a false prophet, then th- then the, the phrase itself, false prophet, has no meaning. None whatsoever. It has no meaning at all. Because if you're going to basically say, well, no, he's a true prophet, but he just prophesied falsely. So he got these four things that you played, Roseboro, you know, wrong, but he still hears from the Spirit. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. And you, you've now evacuated the, you know, the biblical definition of false prophet of any meaning whatsoever. And if you're going to say that, well, he's still a true prophet, then, then by definition, there is nobody who you can actually say is a false prophet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's just kind of the strange thing. And by the way, Scripture also makes it very clear that just because somebody prophesies something that's going to happen correctly doesn't make them a true prophet either. Now the question is going to be in their doctrine. But see, that's the thing. With Benny Hinn, not only is he prophesied falsely, he teaches false doctrine, he twists God's word, he teaches for shameful gain the things that he ought not to teach, and he's not anybody that you know that Christians should be listening to, reading, you know, dis- put themselves under his ministry for discipleship or anything of the sort. And any charismatic who would say, "No, no, no, he's a he's a good teacher, he's a good Christian brother," he just he just gave a few, he just t- prophesied falsely a few times. That person is ga- in playing and you know engaging in word games. And they are not speaking the truth to you. So if somebody is a, a public teacher and will not abide by the biblical definition of what a true prophet is and what a false prophet is, uh, but for the name of their movement will, well, fudge the definitions a little bit, um, that person is extremely dangerous and is literally leaving Christ's sheep wide open to attacks by vicious wolves. Vicious wolves like Benny Hinn. All right, we're still under the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate uh, update, and uh, we're heading over to Bethel and uh, their YouTube channel, and they posted this today, and I thought this was fascinating. Now, according to the Bethel.tv Reading YouTube channel, uh, this is audio from last week's Fall Leaders Advance. And we're going to be hearing from Chris Vallotton, and we're also going to be hearing from Bill Johnson. And apparently, we, we got a prophetic word here, folks. Uh, <laughs> let's see if you can make sense of this. I just believe that we're supposed to pray into the November surprise. You're supposed to pray into the November surprise. Do you have a biblical text for that, Chris? The Lord told me there's going to be a, a November surprise. So why don't Yeah, you- November is like... We got two days left in this month, and uh, not a lot of room left for surprises. Let's receive that for you, for your people, and for your country. So, Lord, we just release the, so, 
this November surprise in the name. You release the November surprise. Again, what on earth is this man talking about? Why are these people clapping and applauding? This is gobbledygook. Jesus, and we, Lord, we just release that November surprise, and we pray that the X Factor, God, you are the X Factor. Lord, this is this like the days of Daniel. Lord, we just pray for the release right now of Jesus' name. When Cyrus became king, Lord, with the people of God were able to return. Lord, we just pray right now for the su- yes. November surprise. That right there, praying for the November surprise. I have no idea what they're talking about. It would be a surprise. That it would be a good surprise, not a bad surprise. <laughs> it'd be the aha of God. It'd be the X factor. Yes. It'd be what everybody says can't happen yes. in your life, in your ministry, yes. in your country, yes. in your city. Every Lord, we city. pray that all over Every the world nation. there would be an X factor. There would be yes. a surprise. Yeah, we're, we're praying for an X factor yeah, and the November surprise. Yeah, I mean, I, uh huh. Yeah, I I can't uh, join together with this. Well, nonsense. I mean, we're we're praying for a, a November surprise. Okay, guys, this November, yes. not next November. It'd be this November yes. surprise that you would surprise us with your goodness. You would surprise yes. us with your goodness. You're even better than we thought you were. Yes. Yeah, if you yes. need to be healed, just raise your hand. You need a healing. Yes. Okay. There's somebody close to you who needs a healing. I'm 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 raising my hand for my wife. So, okay, we just pray that November surprise right here. Yes. Right here. In yes. So apparently the November surprise has something to do with you receiving a healing. Right. Okay. Um. Again, this is just bizarre. Same. Well, we pray. Let that November surprise include yes. every single sickness. That's represented by the hands that are up yes. right now in Jesus' name. Christmas comes early. Whether yeah. those- Christmas is coming early, folks. It's coming in November, man. Because there at Bethel, they've released the November surprise. Oh, man. I'm, I'm, I don't know why they didn't release the November surprise in October. I mean, because there's just so few days left of November, you know? Sicknesses have been for years, days, months, decades... Lord, we say a November surprise in the bodies of your people in Jesus' name right now. And that there will literally be hundreds of testimonies that come out from this word that you were better than they thought you were. Right, yeah. So the November surprise will make it so that people will realize that God is so much better than they even thought he was. This is just, uh, yeah, I think this falls under the category of God sending a strong delusion over people so that they'll believe a lie because they despise the truth, you know? Just say, I receive that for myself. You received the November surprise for yourself, really. Yeah, how on earth did the church make it 2,000 years without the November surprise? I mean, these are great days we're living in, folks. I mean, God is finally... After 2,000 years, release the November surprise. Amen. Christmas comes early. <laughs> and there's building. Yeah, amen. Christmas comes early. And all the people there from around the world, you know, uh, like 37-something nations there at the uh, Bethel Church's Fall Leaders Advance. They are 
they're all embracing and and accepting and you know activating the November surprise thingy. And wow, yeah, uh huh. Christmas comes early. You, you keep saying that, Bill. Now, a little bit of a note here. We're going to note that Bill Johnson is going to engage in the um, non-Catholic form of non-prayer. Now, let me explain. Okay, The devil does not want you praying. No, not at all. The devil knows that God hears our prayers and that as Christians, our prayers are, are precious to him. And you know, prayer is a vital part of the Christian faith. And so when the devil goes after um, the church and he's able to split part of the church off from the rest of the from the rest of the healthy church and they become diseased, what end up what ends up happening is is that the devil replaces biblical prayer with something that ain't even prayer. And so you think of it think of it this way. Here you got all these Roman Catholics running around the planet, right? And they all say they believe in Jesus. And do they pray to him? No. Who do they pray to? Mary. You know, St. Agnes, you know, St. whoever. Name the different I don't even know any of the saints to be honest with you. But they pray to them, you know, St. Sebastian and, you know, whatever. And here's the thing. Every time a Roman Catholic prays to Mary, prays to a dead saint, they aren't praying. In fact, it's like literally picking up a phone and dialing a number that is disconnected. We're sorry, but the number that you're trying to reach has been disconnected and is no longer in service. Please check the number and try again, right? But you see, they they apparently aren't listening because if they just read the scripture, scripture says there is one mediator between God and man, and that's Christ. And so we are to pray and we are to pray to the father. We are to pray to the Holy Spirit. We are pray to Jesus. This is what scripture teaches us to do. We can we can pray to either member of the Holy Trinity and Jesus. He taught us to pray our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So you, you get the idea here. But when we pray to the Lord, we pray to God. Well, God hears our prayers. But when we pray to Mary, one of the dead saints, yeah, no, those prayers are going nowhere. Now, the the, the non-Catholic not, uh, non-form of praying is to decree and declare things. Uh-huh. rather than humbly petitioning and asking God, which, by the way, is what the Greek word prosukamai means. I mean, when you pray, it, it means to humbly pray, to beseech, to ask you know, God for help, to you know, plead for his help in your time of trouble, things like that. And, and so, but that's not what they do. They, they, they decree and declare. So this is the non-Catholic form of non-praying that uh, Bill Johnson's engaging Let's just in do here. one more thing before you sit down. I'm sorry. We've got 37 countries here that, that I know of. We usually miss a few, but um, I'm going to be declaring America shall be saved. Right. He's, he's going to declare it. Yeah. He's not going to pray. He's just going to declare it. But I want, I want you to put your nation on your lips. And I want us to declare it three times. All right, so we're going to declare it, man. Yeah, three times. Wow, yeah, that's powerful stuff. It, once isn't enough, but if you do it three times. Uh-huh. Notice they're not praying. Whatever country you're from, 
I want us to declare a piercing word into the heavens. You do that. You declare a piercing word. You go right ahead, and it won't even pierce the ceiling at Bethel there. It'll pretty much just ricochet right off the top of the roof and bounce right back in your face. One, two, three. America shall be saved. America shall be saved. America shall be saved. Well, there you go. So, <clears throat> so we had the November surprise release thingy and uh, and non prayer, you know, from Bethel. Yeah, that's so so unhelpful. Um, so not even Christian. And well, what? How is this possible? Why are these people claiming to be Christians and behaving so non Christianly? Answer: Because they do not believe that the Bible is sufficient. They believe they're hearing from the Spirit directly. And what they're hearing, they put more weight to than what is actually written in the Word of God. And as a result of it, they're engaging in nonsense, delusional doctrines, and, well, non-prayer. But, oh, it sounds so pious, but it's just total demonic obfuscation. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with Larry and Tiz Huck and demonstrate to you their false teaching regarding you being cursed, apparently, if you oppose somebody who's genetically Jewish. Yeah, stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no, oh, no, oh, a pirate's life for me. We'll pillage, we plunder, we rifle, we loot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Presents Church Day Select. All right, I got a large, not fat decaf mocha with. No whipped cream, two pumps of chocolate and diet soy milk for Tiffany. Oh, actually, it's just Tiff. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, Tiff, then. Like, thank you so much. I've never made a drink quite like this before. I can't even imagine what you call it. My friends call it, like, the why bother, but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it. (laughs) (laughs) Nice talking with you. Adios. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. 
So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street. It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. So Jeff said, wrecked him, wrecked him. You practically killed him. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right, use that. A little bit there and uh, there. That seems to have gotten most most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So, first of all, I'm like a sinner, and I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came, and he died on the cross, and everybody's sins were forgiven, and we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all shut up and said that we loved him, and then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven, but instead these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you? You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt? Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Bum, 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 
warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that somebody who prophesies falsely is a false prophet. And that's exactly what Scripture teaches. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute, well, an amount that you get to pick. That's right. There are four ranks in our crew. Mm Mm-hmm. And the ranks are based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. It's a great way to support us. Um, and, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. And if you are in, you know, if you're thinking about giving Pirate Christian Radio gear and swag and, is that a word? (laughs) And uh, stuff for Christmas presents this year. Uh, we our Reformanda game, our card game is uh, is available on the website. T-shirts, we have Cairo flag stickers, punk pins, and and refrigerator magnets and things like that. Head over to FightingForTheFaith.com, click on our bake sale link, and uh, get your Christmas gift orders in soon so that we can uh, have enough time to get them out to you uh, for the holiday season. All right, moving along. I've got... Yep, time for a money-grubbing televangelist update. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now. The Deutsche Mark's getting dearer and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. Quite as wonderful as money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must anchor for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that waits the world around. Round, 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 you can keep round, your marks as ways, but it's only just a ways. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. That's right. It's the Monty Python money song. That's one of the pieces of music we use here at Fighting for the Faith to introduce money-grubbing televangelists. Now, if you heard last week's uh, episode where we put in uh, my beginnings of my uh, ramblings through the book of Exodus, you'll note that the first installment had to deal with a correct understanding of who is the Israel of note in Scripture. You see, Scripture uses Israel in several different ways. Mm -hmm. Israel can refer to the individual human being who was born Jacob, mm -hmm, the brother of Esau, um, and uh, the son of Isaac. So Israel is used in that sense. Israel can also refer to those genetically descended from Israel, uh, and the, you know, you could say the the people of Israel. Uh, Israel can refer to the land. That, that's right, the nation itself, the territory, 
between Egypt and Syria along the Mediterranean coast, or Israel can refer to those who have the same faith as Abraham. And so keep that in mind as we listen to Larry and Tiz Huck try to explain to us that we can curse ourselves by merely opposing or saying a nary word against somebody who is genetically Jewish. And we'll check, we'll test this out from scripture. Here's Larry and Tiz Huck. Get ready for Tiz's part. She will be making the yummy sound. That's to be her role on this television program. But here we go. You know, one thing I love about teaching the Word of God, you know, one one thing that I've really learned in studying the Jewish roots of Christianity, people people ask us all the time, what's changed since you begin to study the Bible through the eyes of a Jewish Jesus, a Jewish Moses, a Jewish Paul? And it's actually two things. Number one, what I've learned is how I treat people is how God sees that I treat him. Right, right. And number two is what God thinks of me. Yeah. That God, that God is not a hard taskmaster. Exactly. That God, it's the Father's good pleasure yes. to give us the kingdom. Yeah. And so in that understanding of how I treat people, mm-hmm. God sees it as how I treat him. Yeah. And that God's pleasure is to give us the kingdom. Yes. Then as we begin to study over the last 25 years, what's blocking the blessing of what Jesus paid for in this? What's blocking the blessing? So apparently God has all these blessings, but there's blessing blockage out there. You you might want to get some, you know, spiritual roto-rooter or something like that, you know, to to clean it out, to unblock it. Seven places he shed his blood. And we want to talk to you about mm. this. The Bible, and I'm just going to give this to you real quick because I want to get in some real meat. We've been talking about breaking the curse mm-hmm. and releasing the blessing. Yeah. The Bible says in Proverbs 26, a curse without a cause right. doesn't come. Yeah. The reason why our world... <laughs> Hang on a second. I just have to... My curiosity is peaked here. Um Proverbs 26. Uh, so he quoted Proverbs 26 too, out of context, uh, the last part of it. So a curse without a cause shall not come. All right, let's check, check this out from the ESV, which is a good modern translation. I'll start at verse 1. All right, like snow in summer or rain in harvest, so honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. Okay. <laughs> a curse that is causeless does not alight. Huh. Interesting. Now I, I just I'm just saying this because it's like, okay, so a causeless curse doesn't alight, but how is he using this? Now is in such a mess yeah. is is there's a reason for that. Yeah. It's not just bad luck. It's right. not the devil is more powerful than God. Right. A curse without a cause does not come. In other words, if a curse comes, Mm -hmm. there's a reason. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So if a curse comes, well, there's a reason, right? It's not very simply go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, Mm -hmm. where God says, Concerning the Israel, the land of Israel and the Jewish people, I will curse those who curse you, yep. 
and I will bless those who yes. bless you. Now, now he's quoting, and he he engaged in an improper reference. He is quoting Genesis 12, verse 3. But let's take a look at that in context. And note the fact that Genesis 12 is referring to somebody in particular. Now, he said that there's a curse that uh, that you can bring on yourself if you oppose Israel and the Jewish people. But is that what Genesis 12, 3 says? Here's what it says, starting at verse 1, Genesis 12. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, So here's how what they're basically saying. Well, see, this is somehow a blanket threat of a curse if anybody opposes the land of Israel, the Jewish people. But note, this is a promise made to Abram. Mm-hmm. Abram. And Scripture is very, very clear that the Abrahamic covenant has to do with the faith that Abraham had. And that not everybody who is genetically Jewish is considered part of Israel. Now, let me give you our our text to kind of back this up. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul, who is genetically a descendant of Abraham and Israel, writes, uh, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, or you can say the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Again, listen carefully. Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, now he's quoting Genesis, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, it's not if if you're genetically descended from Abraham, that's not what makes you part of Israel. What makes you part of Israel is if you have the same faith as Abraham. And Romans 11 goes on to make the same point. 
Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Well, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, you've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. Or they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself... 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Well, by no means, rather through their trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means the riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, thus to save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and these are genetic Jews, they were broken off. And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but it is the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness towards those who have uh, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness is to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So here's the idea. We've kind of already begun to lay this out very clearly, that what Larry Huck is engaging in here is false teaching due to a failure on his part to rightly distinguish the proper referent of Genesis 12, 3. Genesis 12.3 is not saying that anybody who opposes the genetic Jews or those who have, well, set up, uh, you know, a, a, a nation in, in Israel, that they are cursed of God. That is not what Genesis 3 is saying at all. In fact, you know, there are a vast majority of the people living in Israel do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They do not believe that forgiveness of sins was won by Christ by his vicarious death on the cross for us. As a result of it, they persist in sin and unbelief. The And Christians, all true believers in Christ, have been grafted into Israel. That's what Romans 11 clearly teaches. So here... Larry Huck is, well, engaging in all kinds of false teaching by not paying attention to what Scripture says about who is and who isn't Israel. If you want to be, if you really want to make this clear, 
the one who opposes the church, who opposes Christians, who opposes true Israel, which we've been grafted into, uh huh, by faith in Christ, they're under that curse, not those who take ought with something that's, you know, that people who are genetically Jewish have said or done or anything like that. We've got a problem. That's what God says. If you curse Israel yep. or if you curse the Jewish people, then I'm going to curse you. Uh, op- no, no. Actually, again, not all those who are descendants of Israel are Israel. Romans 9 made that very clear. So it is if you bless Israel... Yep. Or if you bless the Jewish people, then I will bless you. Yeah. So really, so I, God's going to bless me if I bless Jewish people who are unbelievers, who persist in denying that Jesus is their Messiah. If we, if we are saying from the pulpit or as Christians, yeah. well, we've replaced Israel. Yeah. There's a curse. Right. Well, uh, no, no. Again, the and I. I don't know where this replacement charge comes from because Scripture makes it clear. Uh, the church hasn't replaced Israel. The church has been grafted into it. And so, you know, I, I don't know what it is he's talking about, but that's not what Scripture says. And, I just, and I'm just embracing what Scripture says. I'm a Gentile who has been grafted into Israel because not everyone who is genetically descended from Israel is part of true Israel. True Israel is those who have the same faith as Abraham. Blame the Jews for killing Jesus. Yeah, There's a curse. Killers. Huh? Christ killers. The Christ killers. Yeah. You know. um, if you blame the Jews for killing Jesus. Now, this is a sensitive subject. This is a sensitive subject. We'll unpack this here in a minute. Uh, but what he's saying is not true because there is actually a biblical text that places, and I'm going to say this very carefully, part of the blame for Jesus's crucifixion on those who are genetically Jewish. I'll explain here in a minute, but let him spin this out just a little bit more. That's given the excuse to attack Jews because they're the Christ killers. And I explained the history of the church for 325 years. Nothing was ever mentioned from the time of Jesus to the Council of Nicaea, 325 years. Nothing was ever said in any Christian doctrine about the Jews killing Jesus. There's nothing. It was always. Uh All right. Now we got a problem here. we're going to have to correct what he said because it's factually incorrect. But I need to make this very clear that somebody who calls themselves a Christian who thinks that it is their job to somehow vindicate Jesus uh, by um, engaging in anti-Semitism because Jews were responsible for his death, that is not Christian doctrine. You've got to keep in mind, Jesus' death is for our sins and for our salvation. And all of us, every single human being alive, is responsible for the death of Christ. And that's exactly how this this gets played out in the book of Acts. But that being the case, the historical data, as well as the biblical data, makes it clear that, well, those most responsible for Jesus's crucifixion, just read the account of Jesus's arrest. <laughs> yeah, who who was it that had him arrested? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the Pharisees and Sanhedrin. Uh-huh. Um, and Jesus's kangaroo court trial overnight, who was responsible for that? Mm-hmm. 
And then ultimately they pronounced the death sentence on him, but they didn't have the power to carry it out. So they needed the Romans' help. So the Romans were also complicit in this. But I'm going to show you a biblical text that actually says something that Larry Huck says doesn't exist. And we're also going to take a look at a couple of quotes from the Church Fathers as well as the Talmud itself. But let's listen to his claim. The Roman army, the yes. Roman Empire. Yes. So being in the era of political correctness... Yeah. People would never say we're against the Jews right, right. because that's not politically correct. So the new anti-Semitic is uh-huh. anti-Semitism is not we're against the Jews. We're against the land of Israel. Right. Now, uh-huh. right. So we're against the land of Israel. And I'm not. I am a pro-Israel guy all the way. Now, I'm going to back this up because I need to uh, I need to have you hear the factually incorrect thing that he said. And we'll disprove and debunk it. Listen again. ...to attack Jews right. because they're the Christ killers. And yeah. I explained the history of the church yeah. for 325 years. Nothing was ever mentioned from the time of Jesus to the Council of Nicaea, 325 years. Nothing was ever said yeah. in any Christian doctrine about the Jews killing Jesus. Right. There's nothing. It was always the Roman army, the yes. Roman Empire. Yes. So be- uh-huh. All right. So let's take a look, number one. At a biblical text, Mm -hmm. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, and we're going to note what it says in Acts chapter 10 about the Jews, well, guilt in, you know, their role in the crucifixion of Christ. Now, the text we're going to be looking to is uh, Acts 10. We're going to start at verse 34 for our context. This is Peter's proclamation of the gospel to the Gentile Roman centurion and his family, Cornelius, right? Here's what it says, starting at verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. By the way, in the country of the Jews, the Jews is your referent there for the they. And the way the Greek works out, it's actually who put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So Acts chapter 10 39 and 40 make it clear that the Jews were the ones primarily responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. It's right there in Scripture. Now, um, Larry Huck also said something that's just patently false, and if you've ever read the Church Fathers, then you know that what he's saying is just absurd, and that is the claim that Oh, uh, 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 until the Council of Nicaea, there was no church father who ever said anything, well, negative about the Jews. And they always blamed, um, <laughs> they always blamed Jesus' execution on, well, the Roman soldiers. That is not true. Origen, 
yeah, who lived from 185 to 254 AD. Here's what he says. The blood of Jesus falls not only on the Jews of that time, but on all generations of Jews up to the end of the world. That's what Origen said. St. Cyprian of Carthage, who lived from 200 to 258 AD, again, well before the Council of Nicaea, here's what he said, quote, This name rebukes and condemns the Jews who, who not only spurned Christ faithfully, faithlessly, but they also cruelly executed him, who was announced to them by the prophets and sent first to their nation. No longer... May they call God their father because the Lord confounds and refutes them, saying, Your father is the devil, John 8, 44. O sinful nation, O people weighed down with guilt, breed of evildoers, lawless children, you have turned your backs on the Lord and have provoked the Holy One of Israel. Mm -hmm. Athanasius of Alexandria, who lived from 296 to 373, says this, Jews have no abiding place, but they wander everywhere. But in every place they transgress the law, and as the judgments of God require, they keep days of grief instead of gladness. Now the cause of this to them was the slaying of the Lord, that they did not reverence the only begotten. Therefore the Lord cursed them under the figure of the fig tree. Uh Uh-huh. You kind of get the idea here, is that uh, something is a little bit off. Uh, What, I mean, first of all, what Larry Huck is saying is biblically, not true. What he's saying is historically not true. Now, I would also note that the uh, the Talmuds also <laughs> have the Jews taking the blame. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it the uh, the uh, the Babylonian Talmud on Folio forty three a asserts that Jesus was put to death by a Jewish court for the crimes of sor- sorcery and sedition Mm -hmm. (laughs) the the jewish talmuds in the jewish talmuds the jews actually take credit for the crucifixion of christ just read the gospel accounts now here's the thing the person who will say the jews are responsible for killing jesus therefore we need to be anti-semitic that person is a dangerous dangerous bigoted racist person and needs to be rebuked brought to repentance and true faith in Christ and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's something totally different. But the person who says, well, no, actually the scriptures make it clear that Jews were primarily responsible for Jesus's crucifixion. But the reality is, is that all of us are responsible because God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ has bled and died for all of our sins. And although historically it is the Jews who got the ball rolling and who basically pronounced the sentence of death on Jesus for uh, you know for him claiming to be God, um, and needed the agency of the Romans to carry out their verdict. So both the Romans and the Jews are complicit in the crucifixion of Christ. Doctrinally, theologically, we're all responsible for Jesus's death. But that being said, okay, what? Larry Huck is teaching is biblically false, factually, historically incorrect and inaccurate, and nothing good can come of this because Larry Huck is a huckster. He's a guy who basically hawks his wares via the internet and his television program, 
and is teaching for shameful gain things that he ought not to teach. But not only that, he is causing Christians to not recognize the fact that we have all been grafted into Israel, and not everybody who is descended from Israel is Israel. That's, again, Romans 9, 6. Dangerous teaching indeed. So what do you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to listen to more of John Wimber's power evangelism. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. We're back, hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Gonna finish up 
this John Wimber power evangelism teaching. This is part two. We uh, did part one a little while back, and I think it's important to get part two in, but let's uh, set this up properly here. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, message, lecture, yeah, comes to us via the late John Wimber of uh, Vineyard fame. It's Power Evangelism Part Do. Yeah, Part Do. And uh, as we uh, listen to this, we're going to note that already uh, John Wimber has made some outrageous, easy-to-refute uh, claims. One of the claims that we left off with regarding his power evangelism was the claim that nowhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, do we see a evangelism taking place without the manifestation of signs and wonders to demonstrate the power of God. And when we left off last, we debunked that pretty thoroughly just by looking at several instances of evangelism that took place in the book of Acts, where there were no miracles performed, not even one, except for the miracle of people being raised from the dead spiritually through the preaching of the gospel. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's John Wimber in Power Evangelism Part Two. Power encounter is the clashing of God's power with the power of Satan. Keep in mind that from the fall of Adam, Satan uh, dominated the turf, the world, until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the point of the incarnation, Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God. This ushered in a cataclysmic clash between two powerful entities the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Prince of the Power of the Air, Lucifer. Power encounter occurs when the kingdom of God comes against the kingdom of Satan. At whatever point it's vested. It can occur in the expulsing of demons, which is probably the most dramatic form of power encounter. It can occur in the dynamic of a uh, person under the unction and leading of the Holy Spirit, going into a community and ministering in an anti-Christian atmosphere, climate, or situation, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, being having an encounter then with officials, leaders, uh, religious leaders, or public leaders, who are antagonistic towards that gospel, and as a result, an, a, a resultant uh, clash occurs in which the uh, people representing the kingdom of Satan are vanquished by the minister that the Lord Jesus Christ has established. And so some of the great missionary stories that we've been weaned on as children are power encounters. There are a number of them in the Bible. Uh, probably one of the most 
dramatic is the uh, story at Mount Carmel, uh, this, in which the prophets of Baal are chosen off by the prophet of God. And uh, the, the harangue that goes on, in which uh, there's an enticement and, and a, you know, a continual degrading, in which they're told to do this and do this because your God's asleep. And then ultimately the fire that came and, and the proof of God's presence and, and the vindicating of God's uh, servant in that process. And so in the Bible, Old and New Testament, we have several encounters. Let's look at a few of them as it relates to the New Testament. We'll begin uh, with uh, an encounter uh, depicted in uh, Luke, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 11. One day as Jesus was standing at the lake of Gennesaret with the uh, people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he sat he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out uh, a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now this is a, a natural kind of scene. It's just something that could have easily evolved in which the... Uh... So apparently this is an example of that new doctrine that John Wimber created called the Power Encounter. Yeah, clearly the uh, 1990s, <laughs> the the 1990s marketing team there at the Vineyard came up with this term. Lord wanted to minister, and it uh, it was a natural thing to get into the boat and move off the shore a distance. Uh, but that isn't the point of the encounter. The encounter occurs between two men, Jesus Christ and Peter, who was to become his disciple. Jesus, operating under the unction of the Holy Spirit, led by the Father. Um, operating under the unction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God in human flesh. I detect a, uh, a canonic false Christology here. The work that he was doing began a, a, in this ministry kind of setting, began a dialogue with Peter. And Peter, who was operating in the natural realm, and as a result of that, operating under the auspices of the kingdom of the evil one. You see, there's no intermediate place. You're either in the kingdom of God or you aren't. You're either operating under Jesus' lordship or you're operating under Satan's lordship. There's no secularized space. There's no intermediate place that you can be in. And Peter, operating under the other kingdom, is operating in what we would call the natural realm. As such, he was an expert. He was an expert fisherman. He understood the art of fishing. He'd been weaned on fishing, had been raised up in the fishing community. I'm sure went out many a night, sat by the bonfire and heard fishing stories. He'd been trained as a fisherman. There's some uh, uh, non-biblical basis to indicate that he may have even owned a group of, uh, or a fleet of fishing boats and that uh, Peter may have been a very wealthy man. And so there's some indication that he had a, a, a great knowledge of the art and the work of fishing. Whatever the circumstance or situation, we see him uh, here caught in a circumstance in which the, the novice is giving the master directions. Jesus, in the case of the fishing, is a novice operating with a master fisherman and telling him what to do. Notice the dialogue and the way it develops, the fourth verse. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. Do you hear the implication? We've worked all night and haven't caught anything. 
And you who don't do fishing or know fishing or have the understanding we have are now telling us to do thus and so. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Can you hear the begrudging dynamic there? I think it's there. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You see, this wasn't just a lesson in fishing. This wasn't just a, a, an artful little story in the New Testament so that it could become a launching pad for evangelists to deal with the issue of winning souls. Um, okay, what else is it then? This is a human drama between two economies. The economy of God is represented in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ operating under the unction of the Father and by the direction of the Holy Spirit and speaking to another man and saying, let's go out and do this at this point in this place. Drop your nets and catch these fish. And another man operating under the economy of Satan in the natural realm, seeing himself in... Yeah, is fishing a, um, a satanic activity? See, immediately I've got to challenge this interpretation because... Um, fishing is a legitimate vocation. It's a way of serving your neighbor. And so he said that by fishing and being an expert in fishing, that, that somehow that Peter is under the economy of Satan. That would mean that fishing by its very act is a satanic act. Yeah, nope, sorry, this interpretation don't hold up. In his knowledge, well prepared, understanding his craft, knowing his business. And he looks at him and says, well, oh boy, you know, here's the preacher man telling me how to do my business. I fished all night and I didn't catch anything. And now he wants me to go, well, because he asked me, you know, I've got to put up with the preacher man, so uh, we'll just go out here and fish. And he fishes or drops the net and catches so many fish that he's about to burst his uh, nets and, and uh, sink his boat that he has to call for help. Now, on one level, there could this little human drama that's developed here could have been satisfied on a very natural plane. Wow, this guy got lucky. He told us to go out here and we caught some fish. Isn't it wonderful? Thanks a lot, Jesus. That's swell of you. But that's not the realm. That's not the level, the plane that Peter's responding in. Where's the message? Where's the, where's the penetration? Where's the communication going on? It's going on at a subliminal level. There's encounter going on here between... Going on at a subliminal level? Is Jesus using mental telepathy? Economies. There's an encounter between the realm of God and the realm of the God of this world. And there's a battle going on. A cataclysmic battle going on. Fighting for the heart and the soul of a man that's, be that's become one of the most preeminent and, and important men of all time. Peter, the apostle. There's a battle going on for his soul. There's a battle going on for his mind. There's a battle going on for his personage. It's carried on at the level of let's go fishing. But underneath it 
is two economies at war, fiercely antagonistic toward one another. Right. Um, notice here, um, <laughs> all the stuff he's sticking into the text that isn't there, some of it doesn't even make any sense. Jesus never met a demon he liked. <laughs> and he didn't like their boss either. And here he is, ministering to a man at the point of his knowledge, at the point of his understanding, and taking him out further than he had ever been. And Peter's response is, oh, God, I'm a sinful man. I'm a carnal man. I didn't understand who it was that was dealing with me. Oh, Lord, go away from me. I'm a sinner. Get it? Power encounter. Super. No. Yes. He notice he began with his doctrine and then went and he's finding verses now to back up the power encounter theology. Rather than exegeting a biblical text and finding the doctrine of power encounter, no. He did this backwards. He begins with his doctrine that his marketing team came up with a name for. And now he's, you know, backwards engineering, looking, oh, well, this is what power encounter is. Look, this is an example of power encounter. Yeah, this is, uh, this is not how you do biblical exegesis. Natural dynamic of evangelism going on. Peter went through a form of salvation here. Peter is responding with a heartfelt response. Oh, God, I'm a simple man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of the fish they'd taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll catch men. And so they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. You say, Well, how do you know that was a conversion? Well, I don't know that it was a conversion. But my feeling is that it was a form of conversion. Well, I, I, I'm not sure that it was a conversion, but I feel that it was. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yep, never read a commentary where the commentator said, well, I can't prove that this was this thing, but I think it's this thing because I feel that it should be. <laughs> the, oh, man. That would have been a conversion. Up. Oh. If it hadn't been a conversion, it would probably do until conversion comes along. We need more of these non-conversions in the church today. Where people get up and leave their employment and follow Jesus. So something important happened here in the life of Peter. Let's look at another one. The day of Pentecost is depicted in Acts 2, uh, starting with verse 1. All right, so day of Pentecost now is a, is a power encounter. Okay. Here we see a, a form again, a power encounter, Curry. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I'm hearing the uh, Disneyland fireworks, and I kept thinking it was my microphone. <laughs> For those of you at home, Disneyland is just a... <laughs> That may be harder to explain than this, right? 
When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? They were overwhelmed at the idea that these Galileans could be speaking these, this multiplicity of languages. Then how is it that each of them hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pyrgia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They were blown away by this situation. Now, we have difficulty today in the reading understanding exactly where they were at the point they were dumbfounded. Now, we noted last time in part one that, that this was a weird teaching because the application is that somehow we as Christians have done it wrong for all of these millennia, you know, since the death of the apostles, and we have not been properly operating in the manifestations of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in order to, you know, in order to really ramp up our evangelism. And so what we need to do is we need to apply ourselves to this power evangelism and these power encounters, and then we can really change the world. And you sit there and go, well, you know, the Holy Spirit does these things as he wants to do them, and it was never dependent on the person manifesting the Spirit to, you know, to, and, and, you know, <laughs> to do what is necessary in order to manifest the Spirit. The only thing that's necessary for the Spirit to manifest is that the Spirit decides that this is what he's going to do. So again, this is a weird teaching because the application is you're not doing enough of the supernatural. You had better get out there and start applying power encounters if you really want to be effective at your evangelism. You sit there and go, well, how do I do that? Well, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta make the decision. Right. Yeah. No biblical text talks this way. It isn't so much the multiplicity of languages that, that uh, is difficult for us because we can see that in itself as a miraculous phenomenon. But where we have difficulties, we don't really see the underlying dynamic here because you don't realize that these Galileans were sort of the backward group of Israel. This wasn't the, 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 the cosmopolitan center of, uh, of elite social life in, in uh, Israel in that day, nor as it is today. Galilee in that day was uh, well, much like the part of the country I was raised in, Missouri and Arkansas. And the people from Missouri, and the part I was from, in southern Missouri and from Arkansas, have a decided accent. You can recognize it right away when they start talking to you. <laughs> and Jesus was a Galilean. And so when he uh, preached, he preached with a Galilean accent. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, I tried to tell this story one time in West Texas, and it did not go over. <laughs> I want you to know that. <laughs> but in any case, these men were Galileans. Now, have you ever heard 
someone from Texas, Arkansas, or Missouri try to speak a foreign language? <laughs> One time I was in Egypt. I'd been away for a while, and I was in Egypt, actually in Cairo, and I was at the airport. And uh, I was so I was so hungry for a hamburger. I would have given a hundred bucks for a hamburger. It'd been so long, you know, eating all those weird things that they fed you over. And uh, but more importantly, I was hungry just to hear a, an American speak. And all of a sudden, I could hear this Texan trying to speak to these French girls that were there on a holiday. <laughs> and here's this big Texan talking to these French girls, and they were they were cute little girls. They were. Uh, just early teens, and they were laughing and giggling. And he was saying, Parlez-vous, France, say, man. <laughs> and they were trying to, to, to uh, wish him good travel, lay good travel, they kept saying over and over again. And they were having the time of their lives. Uh, actually, he was too. But it struck me again how difficult it is sometimes. You can't really get there from there. You know what I mean? When you come from certain points of colloquial speech, it's hard to get to other places. And sounds smooth, suave, and sophisticated. And I think that's an underlying dynamic here. You see, these guys were not only amazed that they were speaking in their languages, but I think the way they were speaking in their languages, they sounded so much like them. And that's what was blowing them away. Now you can accept that or not, take it or throw it out, but it's the way I look at it. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Now I want you to note something interesting. There's two kinds of people here. The people that had the experience and the people that witnessed the experience. The people that had the experience are out of it. <laughs> having a great time, you know. They're just having a ball. But the people that are watching the experience or witnessing the experience they're described by such words as amazed, perplexed, vexed, in another place, uh, upset, I think it says somewhere up here, bewilderment. Those that were witnessing it are having a more difficult time than those that were experiencing it. You may find yourself in one or the other of those two positions over the next few days as we begin our clinics. If you find yourself in a... You're going to have clinics so that people can practice power encounter. Again, how, how do you do this? Um, you know, how do you make the decision to make the spirit move? That's where you're bewildered, vexed, or perplexed. Recognize that this only takes one quick step to get over on the other side of the ledger. <laughs> and conversely, to get back as you try to integrate what you're learning. Some, uh, however, have made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And Peter gets up and addresses the crowd. Now, what we have here is a form of power encounter. Again, we're dealing... Uh, yeah, power encounter, yeah. You, you need to learn how to apply the principles of power encounter to really supercharge your evangelism, you know? The rational and the transrational. Something transrational has occurred. Something supernatural. Something from the cosmic world has invaded the empirical world. Here, something that sounded like wind and that looked like fire has occurred to a group of men up in an upper story, and they have begun speaking in languages that are known languages but unknown to them. Now, that in itself isn't so incredibly significant, but the fact that they were speaking in so many languages and doing it so well is what makes it significant. Packaged in the fact that it was instigated by this supernatural phenomena, which caused a great crowd of people to come as a result of the rushing of the wind and hearing about the, the, fire, the, the uh, 
uh, flames of fire, and then, and then seeing and encountering this stupefying, perplexing, bewildering, and vexing reality that these Galileans are speaking with such sophistication and such smoothness the languages of their own country. This foment, this dynamic, this power encounter created a foundation for the preaching of the gospel. It made an opening, it made a way for the preaching of the gospel. As no doubt about it, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit did create a foundation for the preaching of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. Absolutely. But where in the epistles, where in the New Testament, where did Jesus tell us that we need to engage in manifestations of the Holy Spirit in order to create foundations for preaching the word? We already demonstrated the Apostle Paul uh, you know, when you get towards the second, you know, half of the uh, book of Acts, is preaching the gospel without any miracles at all. <laughs> and people are being brought to penitent faith in Christ quite effectively. Again, where are we instructed, commanded, admonished to manifest the Spirit in order to supercharge our evangelism, you know, power encounter style? with much supernatural phenomena. Many times when God does something of this nature, in a, and by that I mean something in, in the supernatural realm that really doesn't have any uh, direct bearing to healing or direct bearing even, in this case, to salvation. He does these kinds of things as a platform for the preaching of the gospel. And Peter, believe me, if Peter had not gotten up in the 14th verse and preached the gospel that he preached, there would have been no converts that day. We must have the coupling of the transrational with the rational, the supernatural with the natural. The That's what he just said. We must have. Where in Scripture does it say we must have? Hmm? Where does it say this? Just because you can point to instances where this has occurred doesn't mean this is an imperative, a must, a command that Christians encounter, you know, engage in these encounters in this way. And then again, what must I do? to create the the atmosphere in which the Holy Spirit begins to manifest himself. By my power, by my doing, what, what works must I accomplish? What steps must I take in order for the Spirit to begin manifesting so that I can fulfill this must that John Wimber has just thrown down on us? ...evangelism with the program evangelism. We have to have a presentation of the gospel, but we also have to have presence of Almighty God working with us. And it is that that I'm speaking to, and it's that that I'm calling you to account with this week. That we recognize that there's an encounter going on, people. There's an antagonism, antagonism today against the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But more importantly, there's an antagonism against his personhood, against his presence. And when the... Yeah, uh, again, Jesus says we're two or more gathered in his name. He's there present. Um... And you're talking about an antagonism of his presence supposedly within the church. Again, where does it say, I must do these things in order for there to be a manifestation of the Spirit, and that I must engage in power encounter evangelism, which somehow then it's, it's, it's on me to make the Spirit manifest in power so that I can do evangelism power encounter style. The presence of God comes into your sanctuary and into your life, you will find that you have antagonism. That you are frightened and put off and bewildered and upset, perplexed and vexed against the very God that you've been inviting to come for years 
and move among you. I have no idea what you're talking about. The manifestations of the spirit you're talking about are not real valid manifestations of the spirit. Why would the spirit manifest where there's false doctrine being taught and the eyes are being taken off of Christ and what he's done for us? I mean, just, you know, that's kind of a basic question there. The first time that the Lord Jesus Christ sent his spirit in great power among us, I was fit to be tied for days. I was so angry. I was so upset. I wanted to get out of the ministry. I said, no way am I going to put up with Well, that's absurd what God did. <laughs> of course, I wasn't absolutely sure it was God. But even after I was convinced it was God, I had difficulty with it. And I want you to know that. When God began moving among us, and not, this particular night, we were having a church service. And, and in fact, that, that Sunday afternoon, I, I was coming out of the, the church service. It was Mother's Day of all days. Mother's Day. If you'd think you'd be safe in church on Mother's Day. Well, I, I'm walking out of the church, and, and God says to me, tell that young man to preach tonight. Well, I'm not in the habit of just telling any old young man to preach in my church. And I said, and particularly that young man, because I heard he was a little strange. And I said, Lord, you want me to have him preach? And the Lord said very clearly to me, yes. So I went up to him and I said, you sure that was the Lord? Yeah. Notice here the, the prophet, um, John Wimber, and yet he's twisting God's word. There's no reason to believe he's a true prophet. In fact, many reasons to believe he wasn't. Honey, would you like to preach tonight at my church? He said, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for the chance. I thought, oh, no. I'm telling you, I died a thousand deaths all afternoon. All afternoon, I agonized. I said, oh, God, you got me into it again. You got me into a mess. He's going to mess my church up. And the Lord said, when did it become your church? I said, oh, that's right, that's right, okay. <laughs> so I went to church that night, and I <laughs> we worshipped extra long. <laughs> I found a lot of announcements that needed to be made. But I, I, and as long as I stretched it, it was still time. And so he's sitting there all bright and alert like a kid at his birthday party. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, he looks harmless enough. All right, come on up. So he comes up and he starts speaking, and I sit down over on the side, and uh, and I'm listening to him, and man, it's great, you know. I mean, it's, I'm thinking, what was I worried about? He was funny. He's giving his testimony and and his pathos in it, you know. And they're trying to weep a little bit, and you, you know, and he, and you, you know, salute a couple times, and he and he's telling you some great verses, and you're laughing and just having a wonderful time. I'm thinking, what was I worried about? This is great, you know. God, you're so good. And then he does the weirdest thing I've ever even heard of. <laughs> Everything's going good, you know, and all of a sudden he stops and he says, well, that's it. He said, you know, the church has been offending the Holy Spirit a long time, and uh, he's, he's quenched, but he's getting over it, and we're going to invite him to come and minister. Now, come, Holy Spirit, and whammo! The Spirit of God comes, and people start fighting. Well, first of all, he says, everybody 25 years and under come forward. Well, in our church, that's everybody, you know. <laughs> You know, they're all coming up there. There's hundreds of them up all crowded around the stage. And he says, come, Holy Spirit. And the next thing I know, people are falling and bouncing in her. And they're laying on the floor and they're talking like turkey. <laughs> really? People talking like turkeys? That doesn't sound like the Holy Spirit at all. That sounds like a demonic spirit. And one kid, he falls. 
One kid, he falls, and the microphone falls with him, you know, and it's laying right in front of his face. And he's speaking in tongues, you know. I mean, I'm not talking about two minutes, I'm talking about 45 minutes he's talking through that microphone. And we're wading through bodies, you know, trying to get over to him. And we can't get the microphone off, and we can't get to him, and Lonnie is going like a banshee. You know, he's running through the crowd and raising his hands, and, you know, and I'm thinking he's pushing people over. He's knocking them down. But he's not even touching them. He's walking by them, and they're going wham, wham, you know, and falling everywhere. And I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, get me out of here. And people are grabbing their Bibles, and they're going, not me. I'm not. And they're going out the door. Some of them I never had seen. That was four years ago, you know, that they went out the door. Well, I want to tell you something. When it, when it finally stopped, when it finally stopped, man, did I get it, you know. I started, all the staff was upset and uptight, you know. They, they didn't tell you the half of it when, when Sam was mentioning that earlier today. He didn't tell you the whole story. Everybody was pretty uptight. Well, I went home, and I tried to be civil, you know, I was polite. Well, thank you very much, and I, for, for ministering. <laughs> I get home, you know, and I, and I try to go to sleep. I, I can't sleep. I get up and I, I go from Genesis to Revelation, you know, and I'm looking for Holy Spirit, come, you know, <laughs> wham, wham, you know, it's not in the book. Yeah. Notice this story is supposed to be, um, you know, supportive of the whole power encounter doctrine thingy. Um, and there's nothing in what he's saying that sounds at all like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would convict the world of sin and unbelief. This is nonsense. This is Toronto blessing, laughter, revival, drunk in the spirit-ish kind of stuff. False manifestation of the Spirit. I'm upset, man. And I, you know, now it's 4.30 in the morning. And I've, you know, I've, all over and over. I did find a few verses where people fell down. That helped me a little bit. But I couldn't find anything that was just like that. And so I, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, oh, God, you've got to do something for me. You know, I, this is terrible what's happened here. You've got to do something for me. And suddenly it, it connected that I remembered reading something in the journal of Wesley where something like this had happened. And so I went out of my garage and I had a big box of books on re revivalists at different times, you know, revival histories as well as revivalists. And I got them out and brought them in the house and I started, and sure enough, some things like that happened with Whitfield, some things like that happened with Wesley. I found it in the Cane Ridge revival. And then I began going back and forth in, through church history. And, I, and about six o'clock in the morning, I found at least 10 different times when this kinds of phenomena had occurred. Not exactly, not Holy Spirit come wham, but things like that. You know, things where people shook and people... So we're going to go outside of Scripture now. Okay, yeah, to build our theology. Now that's not a source that we're supposed to go to as Christians to find sound doctrine. It's got to be in the Scriptures. This sort of thing. So I was feeling a little bit better. Now it's 6 o'clock in the morning and I'm saying, God, if this is you... I've got to have some assurance. I've got to know, is this you? Is this something you're doing or not? Just then the phone rings. And it's my friend Tommy Stein from Denver. Now, Tommy wasn't in the habit of calling me 
uh, all that often in those days, but he would call up every couple months or I would call him. Hey, hey, what's going on, man? You know, what's happening? Did you have a good day at your church? Oh, Tom, let me tell you about it, man. You know, this guy, Lonnie. Oh, Lonnie, I know Lonnie. Yeah, he used to be. Oh, yeah, I remember him. Wham, right? Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, Lonnie Frisbee? Huh. Yeah, that tells me something. Look, man, this is what he did to me. He came in, he talked a little while, and he said, Oh, Spirit coming, and people fell down. And people left my church, my staff's mad at me, and I'm not sure what's going on. My wife's happy as anything. She liked it all. <laughs> and he says, it's the Lord. I said, it's the Lord? He said, yeah, it's the Lord, man. It's just, that's exactly what happened to us in the early days of the Jesus people revival. The same kind of power, the same kind of manifestation. In fact, as we talked, the Spirit of God began gripping his heart, and he began repenting of some hardness that he had towards just this kind of phenomena because he'd sort of grown away from it and become too sophisticated for it. And so I felt a great deal of assurance because God had given me a witness, a credible witness, that had called someone that had been... A little bit of a note here. Lonnie Frisbee. Um, was associated with the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, you know, the Jesus People movement, as well as the Vineyard movement. Lonnie Frisbee was a practicing homosexual. Mm -hmm. He was. Um, so this is um, this is just absolutely fascinating stuff to me. Uh, it makes me wonder. I mean, were they talking about? Did they even realize that regarding Lonnie Frisbee? So why should I believe that this was a manifestation of the Spirit? Someone that had seen it from the inside out. I'd only heard about it. I'd lived here in the community, but I wasn't aware of the totality of the Jesus People movement until much after the movement had already began declining. That will come as news to some of you. But <laughs> the Jesus People movement's over. It's a new day now, and God's doing some new things. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I, I recognized in, in that in that a communication that, that I was in for a, a, an interesting time. Well, over the next few weeks and months, the phenomena continued to occur, uh, often unrehearsed, often without any kind of leading from us. It would just happen in places. Uh, our young people began roaming the community in packs. We would see them sometimes in parking lots and in front of houses, raising their hands and praying for people, and wham, they would go. And over the, that was in May. By, the, by September, we had baptized over 700 new converts. Evangelism was occurring everywhere. That was not, those were the ones we baptized. The best we can figure, there may have been as many as 1,700 new converts in that three-and-a-half-month period. But the ones that we baptized, the ones that came toward us as, as, uh, and became involved in the fellowship, was approximately 700. God was on the move. I had never seen evangelism like that. I had never known that there was that kind of power. The problem was I didn't have any grid to sort it with. Nothing I had ever been taught in my educational background helped me to understand Holy Spirit come whammo and how that related to evangelism. It doesn't. And the person who did the Holy Spirit come whammo thing was Lonnie Frisbee, who it's well documented that during this time in his life, he was a practicing homosexual. We continue. How power and power signs and power activities could bring about conversion in the lives of individuals. But as I uh, began dialoguing with people, and keep in mind I do have some training as a sociologist, 
And so I'm used to measuring phenomena and, 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 uh, and looking at things from that perspective. And as I began dialoguing with various people that were visiting and uh, that had been ministered to during that period of time, I, I found there was a commonality. That regardless of what the, the uh, phenomena was, whether they were slain in the spirit or rested in the spirit or fell and shook or stood and shook or sat and shook, uh, whether they should yeah, again where is the doctrine of slain in the spirit taught in scripture shaking uncontrollably where is that taught in scripture this sounds nothing like the holy spirit mildly or mildly whether they had a, 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 an experience that was somewhat catatonic or whether they had some other so notice here i mean he he sees he has this experience and he can't find a biblical paradigm or doctrine that teaches this, or teaches us to expect it. The person who brought it was a practicing homosexual. Uh, but don't worry, he 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 trusted the uh, well. He trusted his friend's opinion regarding what it was that it that it was the Holy Spirit. And yet, nothing in Scripture teaches us to believe that this is how the Holy Spirit operates at all. In fact, the things that are being said here run contrary to what Scripture teaches regarding how the gifts are to be manifested. Mm -hmm. So he's outside of Scripture and and learning from uh, well sources outside of Scripture that well this has got to be God. I look at Scripture and say there's no way it's God. Kind of an experience. There was a commonality of acceptance of the experience. No one I ever talked to that had had an experience was sorry. They all uniformly responded with, it was wonderful. I feel closer to God as a result of it. Yeah, that's I weird. I spent time in the charismatic movement, and I, I look back at that time, not as it being wonderful, but it being, well, dark. Love the Lord more as a result of it. I'm reading the Bible more now. I'm praying more now. I'm sharing more now. I'm more involved in the church and I'm more in love with... Oh, yeah. So these personal anecdotal stories in the short term all prove that this has got to be God, right? We're just not going to let the, the Bible be the determiner as to whether or not this is really from the Spirit. Instead, we're just going to go with, well, outside ways of measuring in order to say, well, this has got to be God. Uh-huh. Right. More than I've ever been as a result of that experience. Now, I don't know how those experiences bring that kind of result. All I know is reporting from the reverse out, that's what they all said. And so I have difficulty at this point in, in my life of resisting that kind of phenomenon when I see the results in the lives of the individuals. Yeah, so stop resisting these phenomena because what matters is the results. Uh-huh. Power encounter. In this case, encounter against what we would call civilized propriety. I, what I thought of as order in the church was evidently not the same thing as what they had in the New Testament church. Uh, really? Where in the New Testament church did people bark like dogs? And fall on the ground and shake uncontrollably. I perceived to be order was something near death. <laughs> but life has its order also. And when the Lord Jesus Christ begins ministering in power among you, you can anticipate that he may 
from time to time tip over the order that you have and establish his own. Let's look at another story in Acts, the fifth chapter. In this case, it uh, talks about the apostles. It says, The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. What's the circumstance? Well, first of all, today, the church has become so secularized and profane that the community doesn't have any thought whatsoever about entering its premises or coming among them. Um, in what way is the church secularized and profane? What are you talking about? No fear whatsoever of moving in among the church. Many people unsaved in, uh, in the community today look at the church as some organization that needs their help. From time to time, I get letters in the mail. They're offering to raise money for me. They want to hold bazaars and sell things among us so that we can make enough money to continue to survive. They want to help old God out with his program. The viewpoint of the community is that the church is not only not relative today, but really has no uh, nothing that they should be afraid of in terms uh, and or regard for. Whereas the church in the New Testament had the numinous, the presence of God to such an extent that the people on the outside were afraid to visit. 13th verse, no one else dared join them, join themselves, come to them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Why were they afraid? Not a, why were they afraid? Because they didn't know what would happen to them if they moved in among those Christians. They didn't know what would occur if they came among those Christians. They didn't know whether the power of God would come out of heaven and consume them. They didn't know whether their sins would be revealed. Um, where does it say that in Acts 5? Hmm? Because, you know, in the early chapters of Acts, you already begin to see resistance against the preaching of Christ. And there being, well, let's just say, temporal circumstances to those who publicly confess that Jesus is crucified and risen from the grave. Secret sins of their hearts spoken publicly in a meeting. They didn't know whether they'd be called to repentance by name. They didn't know whether there would be healing. They didn't know whether there would be demons exposed. They didn't know what would happen to them if they came into the church. When I first saw this in Scripture seven years ago, I remember falling to my knees. I was reading it in the, in the, in the uh, uh, kitchen, uh, next to the kitchen table. I was reading it, and I saw this, and I involuntarily fell on my knees, and I said, Would to God I had a church like that! Would to God I went to a church where it was frightening! to visit it. Well, I'm pastoring one like that now. It's dangerous to hang around here. You hang around here long enough, somebody, usually a sweet young thing, will walk up to you and say, you know, you've got a little problem with this in your life. And then name your sin. I've seen it hundreds of times. Not only here in the sanctuary, but in our prayer room, week after week. I've seen the, the secrets of men's and women's hearts exposed among us. As God, through his mercy, has caused some one person to catch the vibe and understand and through word of knowledge, wisdom, or otherwise, some revelatory gift, know the hearts of individuals. Numerous times, as we've gathered, those that, were, that had uh, demonic uh, bondage in their lives, that bondage was lifted. They went through uh, either a ex full-on expulsion as a result of demonization, or they went through some other kind of, of ministry. 
God is on the move here. It's not safe to come to this church. It's not safe to assemble yourself among these people. I like it. I would agree. It wasn't safe. You were likely to catch a spiritually transmitted disease you know, from the false doctrine and the Bible twisting that happened from the stage. Acts, the 13th chapter, Paul and the proconsul, verses 6 through 12. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Papas. And there they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man sent from Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Now, the interesting thing is, is this is the beginning of Acts chapter 13. In our last sermon review on part one of Power Evangelism, we noted that the next half of chapter 13 is an example of the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel with no signs, with no wonders, no miraculous manifestations whatsoever. Uh Uh-huh. That was one of our examples. Yet he claimed so emphatically he couldn't find a single example of evangelism without the miraculous. And yet it's literally verses below where he's going to end reading here this, this account. Edomus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Encounter! Power encounter! Are you, are, you, are you experiencing enough power encounters in your life? You better make the right decisions, apply the right principles, um, submit yourself properly to whatever whims of the Spirit there may be out there, and, and that way you can, uh, well, experience power evangelism. It's, it, this must be taking place. You need to do this. Sounds to me like what he's really trying to get them to do is and here's kind of the subtext of this teaching. Stop questioning that what's happening here is a manifestation of God the Holy Spirit. What's at stake is evangelism. You want to reach the world, don't you? Well, then if you want to reach the world, you need to stop doubting that these manifestations are God the Holy Spirit. They are. We have godly men who've looked at stuff and all agree this has got to be the Spirit. So that's really kind of the subtext of this sermon. This had his witness. God had sent his ambassador, but the enemy had his. One, the enemy was entrenched in a powerful position in the court. The minister, uh, Paul came... Now, you'll notice that in order to do proof texting back in the day, time, you know, the John Wimber's time, you had to actually read a few verses. You don't even have to do that anymore. I mean... You know, seeker-driven, vision-casting leaders and visionary types. I mean, they just, you know, take a couple of half-sentences out of context and weave together a theology. And there's no need to actually engage in anything that even remotely appears like or smells like or rhymes with exegesis. No, no, no need to do that at all. Just whip them into a crowd and tell them to apply particular principles and things like that. Minister, as he came before Sergius Paulus, uh, who was an intelligent man and, uh, and, re- and responded to the message, Elamus took his position and attempted to move him out. Notice the eighth verse. But Elamus, the sorcerer, was, that's what his names mean, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. There was need for action. There was need for powerful action. Paul and Barnabas could have just turned tail and left. Because, oh, excuse me, I'm in the wrong place. That guy's going to get us. Yeah, this guy's a powerful dude. He's going to give us a bad time. We're liable to go to jail. 
we hang around here. Why, he's got the ear of the boss man. He can get us. But instead, it struck the spirit of Paul. And a word of faith came forth. And then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. We're talking about unction. We're talking about anointing. We're talking about power here, folks. The power of God is on this man. And he turns and he says, you are a child of the devil and from the enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Now, that's not calculated to make friends with that guy. I want you to know that. But Paul is speaking the words of God in that moment. He's speaking under the unction and the anointing. Even as Moses was sent before Pharaoh to speak as God before him, Paul was speaking as God in this moment. Under the unction of the Holy Spirit, he says, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. And you're going to be blind for a time. And you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Power, people. Power to withstand. Oh, yeah, indeed. That was powerful. Again, where am I commanded to operate in this power? Hmm? Where am I told that I am not engaging in proper evangelism unless I am manifesting power encounter manifestations of the Spirit? Hmm? Power to prevail. Power to do the work of God. In I have the power. <laughs> mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now what was the teaching about the Lord? The teaching yeah, and the next verses are an example of Paul preaching the gospel. Without any signs, wonders, or miracles, and people believing. Weird. But the Lord was that the Lord was there. And the Lord is powerful. The Lord is more powerful than the institutions of men. The, more is, the Lord is more powerful than those that would gain position through ambition and, and intrigue. The Lord is more powerful than those that have entrenched themselves in man's institutions and programs. And he is demonstrated that power through one faithful witness. And Paul spoke the words of God, and God backed up his act. Power encounter. Got it? It's not something you'd volunteer for. It's something that happens to you through the leading, through the unction of the Holy Spirit. All right, we're going to do a clinic. Lay your stuff down. They're going to do a clinic? Uh-huh. So, yeah, they, wait till you hear how he introduces what it is that he's about to teach. Yeah, because basically what it boils down to is, like, well, you know, faith without works is dead. So if you say that God is, you know, if you believe that God is all-powerful and you don't operate in the power of God, well, that's just like faith without works. Yeah, that's what he's going to argue. Listen in. In our Western civilization, we have had a propensity for and a preoccupation with study and the pursuit of knowledge. We, we have equated knowledge, the gaining of knowledge, with power. We recognize that those that know, rule. Throughout the world, the Western world, knowledge, the gain pursuit of knowledge, has resulted in the ruling class. Those that are knowledgeable, rule. We know that. We know that instinctively. We know that by precept and example. In the church today, we have been conditioned 
to the same value system. The church today is worldly. The church today is westernized. We're so secularized, we've almost completely eliminated the supernatural from our perceptions. We've eliminated the supernatural. How, how did we do that? How did we eliminate the supernatural? We've come to a place where we don't anticipate God to operate as God among us. Do I have to anticipate that God is going to operate as God among us before there can be powerful signs and wonders in our midst? We've come to a place where we really think that the pursuit of study is, has become an end in itself, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing to study this book. It's a good thing. It's an important thing. It's a foundational thing. But to study it without acting upon it is incomplete. Uh, I see. So, yeah. So if I study God's word, but I don't act on it, you know, which means, you know, I'm reading stories about the miraculous. So I need to go out and act on that so that the miraculous can happen, you know, through my hands. Uh huh. That, that's not how that works. Both Jesus and James told us that hearing without doing is incomplete. Uh, do you think hearing without doing was talking about the not doing of manifestations of the Spirit and power? That's not the context of hearing without doing. Jesus came as the Word of God. He came from God, became incarnate, and spoke the words of God for all humanity and all, all time to know the heart and the will of the Father. The words then illuminate the heart and the will of the Father. If you study Jesus' words, you can understand and, be, and have the illumination of the heart of God. But the works illustrate. We not only need the illumination, we need the illustration. We need the word and the works. To say I love you and do nothing about it is an incomplete statement. Right. So if you say you love God, but you don't operate in the supernatural, yeah, you, you just don't love God. To say, I'll pray for you and not pray is incomplete. To say that Jesus heals and not pray for the sick is incomplete. To say Which Christian doesn't pray for the sick? Jesus saves and not witness to the lost is incomplete. To say that God is God and Lord of all things and not operate as though he is God and as though he is Lord is incomplete. Oh, see, there it was. Yeah, see, if you don't operate as if he is God. Just incomplete. I mean, you can't sit there and say, well, God is God, but you, know, you don't operate as if he is God. How, how does one go about doing that? You see, I have no problem praying for the sick. I have no problem preaching the gospel to the lost. How do I, uh, well, how do I obey this important, you know, command, you know, to say that, you know, I, that I believe God is God, but you know, but I need to demonstrate that by my works, by operating as if he is God. How does one go about doing that? We've been inconsistent in many of our patterns and practices in the church. What we're about to do is invite the Holy Spirit to come. We're going to ask him to minister to us. We're going to ask him to give us direction. We're going to learn to move this week with the, the Spirit of God. When You're going to learn to move with the Spirit of God. Where does the Bible teach us? how to move with the Spirit of God. Spirit does, we're going to do. But He's the leader. Okay? I never know when I ask Him to do these things what He's about to do. There was a day that I worried about it. Now I don't even worry about it anymore. It's so much fun that I just... I like to watch people do weird things. 
Yeah. Right, yeah, because people doing weird things, that's a sure sign that God the Holy Spirit is at work, right? Wrong. Because I like what happens to them afterwards. It's not so much the process as the benefit that's accrued afterwards through the process that I like. So let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to come, that the Word and the works may become one. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your presence here today. We've sensed you all day hovering over and in this place. We thank you, Lord, that you're like a bridegroom waiting for the bride, that you're anxious and caring and sensitive and loving and generous and warm, and that you know every single human being that's in this place. You know every need they have. And so, Lord, we invite you to come now and minister among us, demonstrating your love and care, ministering whatever ministry you want to minister, O oh God. We're your children, and we've come to your table. We know you set a sumptuous table. And so here we are, Lord. We invite you to come now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now just wait on the Spirit. He'll give me direction in a moment. So they're just going to wait for the Spirit, okay. Don't get too religious, just relax. Uh -huh. So just relax, turn off your brain, Yeah, make yourself at home. Just don't think. You stir yourself up too much, it stops the process. Right, so apparently if you get all stirred up, the Holy Spirit goes, well, I can't show up now. They got all stirred up. That, that kind of frightens me, you know. Okay. The Lord is uh, stirring me, and he wants to do some healing now. And he's given some words of knowledge. He's given me a couple of them. But he's given some of the others of you some also. What I want to do is uh, speak two or three of them and pray for some people. And then we're going to kind of dismiss and all of us pray uh, for the rest of them. Someone that has a condition in the right side of their nose. It's uh, right from here down to the just above the nostril. It's internal and it's swollen and quite painful on the right side of the nose. There's also a, a male here that has a, a herniated testicle and it's really quite painful and that you need healing. There's a another male that has a condition in the left shoulder. It's down the My question, why does this sound like a psychic reading? Is God not capable of giving you the names of these individuals? You know, and saying, you know, listen, um, I'm you know, the person, uh, Sally, 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 uh, Sally uh, Bennis. Is, are, is Sally Bennis here? You know, the, the Lord told me your name, and, she, and he told me that you have a medical condition. HIPAA is in, in place, so we don't want to embarrass every, you. We don't want to embarrass you with, by telling everybody your medical condition, but uh, I, w w let's come up and let's pray for you and for you to have healing. Why is it that, you know, this is like he's fishing rather than prophesying. You know, just noting that. And across the shoulder. And uh, again, it's, it's quite painful. I don't know the full circumstance of it, but I can feel it across the back of my back and neck. Uh, the muscles are drawing and they're very tight. That might be me. <laughs> and <laughs> there's somebody with a swollen abdomen. And the Lord wants to heal you. 
Blaine, has the Lord given you any other words? Why don't you come and give us? Also, uh, somebody here tonight that's, that has pulled a muscle on the left inside thigh. It's a male. Muscle on the left inside thigh, a male. Difficulty. Why all the vagaries? Isn't God talking to you or not? Somebody who has a, a mastoid infection and they've been having a lot of drainage down, particularly in the left side of their throat. That's causing a lot of irritation. Mastoid infection with drainage down the left side of the throat. Also somebody with partial blindness, a blind spot in the left eye. It's in the upper, kind of upper left Upper side. left side. Yeah. The left eye. Blind spot in the upper left side of the left eye. You see, I mean, look at this. They're operating in power. I mean, this should just change the world, you know. Is that about seven or eight? Okay, let's do this. All of you that have these conditions, will you come up here and let us pray for you? And the rest of you can sit down for a few moments. Just make your way up here. <laughs> Some of these symptoms were quite vague. I'm going to come ask you to just come up and sort of line up across here. Now, normally, except in a clinic situation, we would never ask people to come up on a stage to pray for them. We're begging your pardon tonight. We're wanting to pray for you and minister to you. But There are more people on stage than there were symptoms called out. Interesting. Also wanting to train them on how to pray and minister. So forgive us if this is slightly embarrassing to come up and be prayed for in public. But tough. <laughs> it's, we don't have any other way to do this thing. We're going to pray for these. But before we begin praying, I want to tell you one or two things. First of all, there's sort of a natural pecking order. You know, in our society, you would kind of usually start here on the left. At least you would probably minister to the ladies first and then work your way down the line. There's sort of a natural process that you follow. Is that correct? Is that what you would anticipate? Some sort of a healing line and to follow along. Well, operating in what we would, we would say a supernatural perspective, we don't do that. When we turn and look at a group of people like this, we're looking for indication of the Father's working on an individual. And when we see, either through distinguishing of spirits or through natural means, the Spirit of God already moving on somebody, that's the first person that we would go and minister to. And we do that because of a basic assumption. So the, the first person you go to is the one who is glowing in the dark the brightest? Uh-huh. That we should do what the Father's doing. Now, first of all, anyone that's up here is probably... Yeah, the, he just took John 5 out of context and, and literally emptied it of its meaning. Sure sign he's not operating in the Holy Spirit. He's twisting God's word. ...ministered to by the Father. That's why they're here. We had words of knowledge, supernatural revelation concerning the condition. Of course, there's always a possibility of some confusion on the part of one of these people. They may have heard wrong or thought we said something else or, or, or. It can be any number of combinations. But even if they've come up here misunderstanding, it's quite likely they're going to get healed because God's here and he's ready to heal. And he's ready to heal people that we haven't given words of knowledge about. So we're not at all worried about the success of the exchange. What we're looking for is who's first according to God. Got it? 
Now, once you begin moving with those that God has singled out and begin ministering to them, an interesting thing begins occurring. Other people become engaged in the process. The Spirit of God begins stirring them and they become prepared. And then you know who next is and who's next and who's next. And sometimes you'll see us just moving up and down and around the line. And you'll think, well, why are they taking this long with this person? Why aren't they with the next one? We're taking them, each one as God is giving us direction. We communicate? Two, we will generally follow procedure that we're going to clarify more in the next few days. Blaine is going to do a, a seminar on healing the body, and he'll be talking about this in depth. And I also, on Thursday night, will be talking about this in depth. But we follow a five-step procedure that helps us in the process of praying for the sick. The only time we bypass that procedure is when the Spirit of God tells us something before we even get to the person. If we do that, then we don't have to bother with the procedure. The procedure is only helpful when we need help. When we don't need help, we just do what God's given us to do. Are we in tune? All right. Blaine, do you want to just pick someone? All right. Yeah. Blaine's going to start praying, and I'm going to be the commentator, okay? Brain is interviewing her, asking her what her condition is. Making sure that he understands. You notice what he's doing with his hand? Her name's Sylvia. He's asking her if she feels power on her. Can any of you see what we're seeing on her? Is she glowing in the dark? What do you see on her? I see a pretty plain-looking dress and some 1980s, early 90s spectacles. There's quite a bit of energy moving over her body already. Really? A lot of energy? Wow. I don't see any energy. And it's the healing power of God. Mm, okay. All Blaine's doing is trying to help her get in tune with it, to realize... Yeah, you see, she's got to get in tune with it, because if you can't get in tune with the power of God, you, you, you can't operate in power and receive your healing, you know. What's going on? Because everybody knows that, I mean, all the people that Jesus healed, the way he did it was helping them get in tune with the power of God, right? Yeah. It says no biblical text anywhere, but okay. Many times we're not conscious of what's happening to us. Blaine is uh, praying for her right now. Yeah, she needed to re relax and let her hands loose because if you're, you're tense in your muscles, you can block the power of the spirit, you know. Sometimes when people have their hands folded, that will actually act as a protective circle. Uh, right. Folded hands can be a protective circle that can keep the Holy Spirit out. Yeah. Stop healing. Yeah. It's a way of feeling safe. I just had her open her hands because I could see the power of God coming down her body and stopping again and again. Yeah, the power of God was stopping because her hands were folded. Right, yeah. You see the energy on her body? No, I see nothing. Believe me, he's not jerking her around. <laughs> He is trying to hold her up. <laughs>
it. Poor Sylvia looks like she's about ready to fall over, yeah. <laughs> Let me get a chair. Steve, bring the chair up from over here. She's also got a female condition with Lord's Museum. Yeah. Okay. You can feel power that right over your female. Sounds like the power of hypnotic suggestion to me, you know. We do not practice... And she just and fell over backwards. Yeah. This, ...the ministry of slain in the spirit. We don't think there's any advantage to people falling down. Sometimes when we pray for people, they get in a state like she's in. She, if Blaine hadn't been holding her, she would have fallen. Uh, she'd be there for quite a while. That's the power of God rippling over her right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I've seen stuff like this performed by hypnotists. This doesn't sound like, look like, the power of God or the Holy Spirit at all, considering all of the biblical texts that you took out of context, ripped them, uh, from the, ripped away from them what they really meant. Uh, you engaged in eisegesis, reading things into the biblical text, and made claims uh, that are patently false and easily biblically false. You know, you can use a Bible to easily falsify them. So, uh, yeah, and this whole idea that, you know, folded hands creates a protective circle that God the Holy Spirit can't get through. Yeah, everybody knows that when Jesus was doing his healing ministry, that uh, the first thing he would do is he would have people unfold their hands so that the power of God could ripple over them. Yeah, you wouldn't want your hands, you know, the circle, the protective circle to keep the Holy Spirit out, right? Yeah. I think you get the point. None of this is biblical. None of this is Christian. This is not actually sound doctrine. This is a deception by the devil and a very slick and subtle one. And uh, going back in history and seeing, you know, downstream where this came from, from Wimber and the Vineyard Church, which is now morphed into you know, you know, the Signs and Wonders movement. And Bill Johnson, you know, has direct connections with these folks um, and others like Shayon and others. Um, you, you get the idea. This is corrupt doctrine at its core and a deception of the devil to get your eyes off of Christ, focused on false signs and false wonders, false manifestations of the Spirit. And there is all kinds of false doctrines and experiential concepts where where you where they're going for their doctrine rather than the the written word of God, yeah, very very dangerous stuff indeed. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pyre Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.